Well, good morning. He is risen. Amen. Happy Resurrection Day. Well, let me just add my welcome to our Riverside family, to visitors with us, to those joining us online. Hey to my brother out in Idaho, and Mark and Sarah and Ryan and Caitlin, and we're just glad that we can gather together and celebrate the resurrection. And I think it's a beautiful morning. Any morning is a beautiful morning when we gather and worship, but especially a beautiful morning this morning, it's spring. I love that Easter falls in the springtime because after this period of dormancy, everything starts returning to life again. The grass is turning green, the, the trees are budding, the leaves are starting to come out, the daffodils are all blooming. I just think that that is perfect for the season that we celebrate. It's kind of amazing to me that you can take something like a tulip bulb that looks dead, and you can stick it in the ground and cover it with dirt, and it springs up into something as beautiful as a tulip. And to me, it reminds me of resurrection, of new life as in resurrection life. So I just think it's appropriate that Easter is in the spring. And as we dive into the text this morning, there's a key question that I want us to consider. And it's this. What does the resurrection of Jesus have to do with me? Maybe you're wondering that this morning. Maybe you don't even want to be here, but someone cajoled you into being here. And now you're here and you're going, what does the resurrection of Jesus have to do with me? Have you ever wondered that? Well, I hope you'll see that the resurrection of Jesus has implications for every one of us, whether you're a follower of Christ, an agnostic, someone who doesn't know, or a devout atheist. It still has implications for us. It will impact us all. And so what is this resurrection anyway? What's that all about? Well, quite simply, oh, I passed it up. Um, Resurrection means to rise again, as in from death to life. It's simply that, to rise again. But here's the thing. Resurrection is really meaningless apart from life and death. Now, I know I'm, I'm the master of the obvious. But apart from life and death, resurrection doesn't mean anything. So if we're going to really consider what resurrection is... We have to also consider life and death. I don't want to be morbid. I don't want to be a downer on Easter morning. But we need to put those three together to really appreciate resurrection. So, you know the saying, there's only two things that are certain in life, right? Death and taxes. One of them is due tomorrow, by the way. <laughs> I hope it's only the taxes. I hope we have a little bit more time on the other one, on the whole death part. How much time do we have? We might not have another day. We might not have another year. Here's some data to ponder. According to the latest statistics from the CDC, the average life expectancy in the U.S. is 77 years. It's 76.6, it's but we'll round it up. And if you don't like doing the math, don't worry. I put together a little chart to kind of help us grasp this. Now, this data means that if you're 50 years old, which most people consider to be middle age, well, you've only got 27 years left. 
You've only got 35% of your life left. That doesn't sound like middle age to me. That's like two-thirds over. Now, maybe if you're a little younger, you, maybe 30, you still got a little more time, 61%. If you're 80 or over, you're in overtime. <laughs> you beat the odds. In fact, Martha Steele, dear Martha, is going to be 100 years old in July, and we're looking forward to celebrating that. Yeah, amen. Martha is Pastor Dan's grandma and, and Dave and uh, Jan's mother. So um, every one of us is somewhere on this chart. Have you found your place on it? One of our pastors is right in here, uh, somewhere around the 20s left remaining. Another one is down here, not too far behind, maybe 40-something percent remaining. I'm proud to say that I'm still in my 20s. <laughs> 20 percent <laughs> left. But nonetheless, death is a reality. This life is brief. It's like a vapor, Jesus had said. Now, as you get old, I guess one of the good things about getting really old is you can hide your own Easter eggs. Because <laughs> you're not going to remember where you put them. <laughs> I'm, I'm already there, kind of. I, 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 I got to wait a day or two, but I'll eventually forget where I put them, and then I can go searching. Well, the Bible says in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, it says, For death is the destiny of every man, the living should take this to heart. Again, unless the Lord returns first, every one of us is going to die. I don't know how you feel about that, but there's a small cemetery in Mississippi where one man made his feelings known. His tombstone here, his name is Chuck Mitchell. <laughs> the top of it says, well, this sucks. <laughs> Maybe you feel that way. I found another interesting one. It's in the Boot Hill Graveyard, and this is in, get this, Tombstone, Arizona. It's the grave of a Wells Fargo agent named Lester Moore, and his epitaph reads, here lies Lester Moore, four slugs from a 44. No less, no more. <laughs> Less Moore's gone. There is no more. Or, there's this one. Here lies John Yeast. Pardon me for not rising. <laughs> well, I have news for Mr. Yeast. He will rise again. And you will too. That's the thing you have to understand. Just as sure as you were born, and just as sure as you will die, you will rise again. Did you know that? See, it's more certain it's more certain than tomorrow's tax deadline because God promised it. He guaranteed it, and the resurrection of Jesus proved it, that you and I, every single one of us, will rise again. So this morning, I want to take a look at the resurrection, but I want to look at it in a different way. I'm not going to go to one of the four resurrection accounts in the gospel. Nathan read one of those this morning. I'm going to go to a different place. I want to take a look at an Easter account that was written almost 700 years before Jesus was even born. And this account is what's known as prophecy. 
Simple definition of prophecy, it's history written in advance. And only God can do this with 100% accuracy. Others can try, but God can tell you what will happen with certainty because he knows the end from the very beginning. And so God spelled out what would happen 700 years ago so that we can know with certainty that this was the work of God. So the message titled this morning is this. It's Easter in the Old Testament. And the text we'll look at is Isaiah 53. And I put three simple parts of the outline. They go together. His life in verses 1 through 6. And his death in 7 through 10. And then his resurrection in 11 through 12. So... The message, the passage we're going to read is from the Old Testament. If you're new to study of the Bible, the Old Testament was written centuries before Jesus was born. It was completed in, in broad circulation hundreds of years before. So that's where we're going this morning to look at the account of his birth, his death, and his resurrection. So we'll start first with his life, and that'll be in verses 1 through 6. It reads, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not. Let's, let's just stop there for a moment. Notice that all of these verses, in fact, the whole chapter is written in past tense. Past tense. That might seem kind of odd for prophecy. But it's something that's known as the prophetic perfect tense. And that speaks of something that is so certain to happen that it's spoken of as though it already has happened. It's spoken of in the past tense. Past prophetic perfect tense. Now, for us, it was 2,000 years ago. So it is past tense. It already did happen. But at the time, it was still 700 years in the future. But it's written in the past tense. And right away, it begins with the question, who has believed our message? Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm or the power of the Lord been revealed? Now, this implies right away that not everyone who hears the message is going to believe it. They're not going to accept it as truth. Pastor Dan taught last Sunday from John chapter 12 in the New Testament. And John chapter 12 says, even after Jesus had done all of these miraculous signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet. Lord, who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Despite all the prophecies in the Old Testament, despite all of the miracles that Jesus did, he calmed the storm, he healed the sick, he gave sight to the blind, he even raised people from the dead in their presence. Despite all of this, they refused to believe in him and they accredited his power to Satan. 
He was despised and rejected by men. See, they made a critical, even a fatal mistake. They confused the prophecies in the Old Testament that speak of his first coming with his second coming. They were looking for this conquering king to come and free them from the oppression of the Romans. But Jesus came humbly to free them from the power and the penalty of sin. He'll come back the second time in power to rule and to reign. But he didn't meet their expectations. And so they put him to death. Now for many Jews, the rejection of Jesus is so complete that over the past 2,000 years, they refused to even say his name. See, his name in Hebrew is Yeshua. It means the Lord is salvation. But they call him Yeshu, which is a slur. It's an acronym that means may his name be blotted out. That's the extent to which they reject him. Most people today, Jew and Gentile, consider to reject the message of Jesus Christ. And there's an ongoing effort to blot out his name. Christmas is now just the winter solstice holiday. Easter, it's not about the resurrection. It's about bunnies. Even our calendar, our dates have been changed. So B.C. no longer means before Christ. They call it B.C.E., before common era. I hate when I see that. It just stirs up righteous anger. And, and A.D. is no longer Anno Domini in the year of our Lord. It's, they don't call it A.D. anymore. They call it C.E., common era. Before common era, common era. They try to blot him out. Who has believed our message and to whom is the arm of the Lord being revealed? Verse 2 continues. He grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. I don't know how you picture Jesus. A lot of people paint him as this blonde hair, blue eyed, handsome guy. But that's not what this says. This says there was nothing outwardly attractive about Jesus. He wasn't dashingly handsome. He was quite ordinary. And he wasn't born to royalty. He was born to a peasant girl in a stable of all places. He was born in a spiritual desert, a dry land. It shows the extent to which God would go to humble himself and come down to earth to save us. Maybe you saw the news last week of the grand opening of the, of the Giga plant in Austin, Texas. Did you see that? It's Tesla's new big plant. It was quite an affair. They branded it a cyber rodeo. And there were colored lights and smoke and flames. Elon Musk rode in triumphant on one of his roadsters. Now I don't have anything against Elon Musk other than he's not a believer. But Jesus Christ didn't come to the world in that way. He came in humility. In fact, last week we celebrated that he came into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. Behold, your king comes to you humble and riding on a donkey. If Jesus had chosen this day and age to come and walk on our earth, I think he would have been rejected outright just based on appearance alone because we're such a celebrity culture. We care what people look like, what they sound like, not what they stand for. See, Jesus just wouldn't fit the bill. 
He didn't back then, and I don't think he does for most people today. It says in verse 3, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hide their faces. Oh, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. His sorrow, this sorrow, it wasn't self-pity. It was sorrow as he looked at the condition of humanity. As he saw the curse of sin that God said, on the day you sin, you will surely die. All of this is going to happen. Disease and death and all these vile things are going to enter into humanity. And it did. And it was a burden to Jesus as he saw these hurting, spiritually lost people. Not only that, the sin brought separation from God. Sinful man could no longer be in the presence of a holy God. I've said it before. It's like drinking water and sewer water. You can't put the two together. The drinking water would no longer be pure. God had to separate himself from mankind. Sin stood in the gap. So verse 4, surely he took our infirmities and carried our sorrows but we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. In other words, the people believed that the persecution Jesus was facing was the just reward for his own sinful behavior. He was getting what he deserved. God was sticking it to him because of the evil in him. But that's just not the case. In our uh, monthly men's Bible study called Recalibrate, we meet on the first Saturday of every month. We've been going through the book of Acts with a study guide by Warren Wearsby. And this month, we were studying the conversion account of Saul of Tarsus. Saul was one of the most vicious persecutors of the believers, the Christians, the baby church in the first century. Until he had an encounter with the resurrected Jesus. He went from being a vicious antagonist to being one of the greatest apostles and evangelists in the New Testament. Saul of Tarsus became the apostle Paul. But in this text, Warren Wearsby did something really neat. He kind of got into the head of Saul to try to understand what he might have been thinking at the time as he was persecuting the church. And he wrote this, putting himself in Saul's place. Jesus of Nazareth is dead. Do you expect me to believe that a crucified nobody is the promised Messiah? According to our law, anybody who's hung on a tree is cursed. Will God take a cursed false prophet and make him the Messiah? No. His followers are preaching that Jesus is both alive and doing miracles through them. But their power comes from Satan, not God. This is a dangerous sect, and I intend to eliminate it before it destroys our historic Jewish faith. See, Saul thought he was doing God a favor by persecuting the church. He considered Jesus stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. The very words of verse 4. But, but, look at verse 5. But he was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. Look at the irony in that verse alone. 
God who created all things would come down and subject himself to the creatures. And the only righteous one would be persecuted and put to death by the unrighteous. And yet, his wounds would bring about our healing. Incredible. You could say it this way. God treated his own son like we deserve. So that he might treat us like only he deserves. Think about that. God treated Jesus like you deserve and I deserve. So that he could treat you and me like Jesus deserves. Now that might be hard to get your mind around. You might say, no, evil men tortured him, not God. Well, 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says, Though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. There's a substitution going on here that we want to dive into. He was pierced for our transgressions. Verse 6 says, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each one has turned to his own way. And the Lord, the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Sheep aren't very smart. They're not. They wander off. They'll follow each other off into destruction. God says, this is the way. Walk in it. In Isaiah 30. He tells us, this is what is right, and this is what is good, and this is what I want you to do, and this is what will bring you blessing. But we go off our own way in rebellion against God. We do our own thing like stupid sheep thinking we know better, and we turn away from God. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each one has turned to his own way. And so what did God do? He laid on Jesus the iniquity of us all. Iniquity is just a fancy word for sin. Here's the thing. God didn't just place the penalty for our sin on Jesus. He placed our actual sin on Jesus. You see, the punishment, the physical suffering, we can kind of get our minds around that because we've experienced pain. But God did more than that. It was the pain of the sin of the world being placed upon a sinless man. It wasn't just the nails or the thorns or the spear. It was that, but it was so much more. And 2 Corinthians 5.21 spells it out more clearly than any other verse. It says, God, God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God. Think about the pain that sin causes. Have you ever had a spouse be unfaithful to you? Have you ever had something precious stolen from you? Have you ever been abused by someone you trusted? Have you ever lost a loved one? You know the pain that that brings. That's the pain of sin. And so now take that pain times billions of people over thousands of years and place that sin upon one man who knew no sin. That's the agony of the cross. It was so severe. God couldn't even look on his son. He couldn't look upon the sin, the sin that Jesus had become. He had to turn his back. 
That's why Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For the first time, the Father and the Son were separated by our sin. He placed it upon Jesus. Jesus became sin for us. It says, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's part of his life. Let's look at his death in verses 7 through 10. It says, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. It's, it's rather remarkable to me that Jesus is the word of God. He's the expression, the communication of everything that God is. And yet when he was on trial before sinful man, he didn't say a word. He didn't open his mouth. Let me read you Matthew 27. It says, when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate asked him, don't you hear the testimony that they're bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. He didn't open his mouth. What could he possibly say that would change their mind? You see, they had heard his teaching. They had marveled at his wisdom. They had seen his miracles, his power, his raising of the dead, his healing of thousands of people. They saw it themselves. But they rejected it. They heard and saw incarnate love. They heard and saw God himself. And they accredited it to Satan. So what could he say at this point? He wouldn't say anything. He would only do one more thing. He would show them one more final act. And if you were with us on Friday night, you know the meaning of Sunday is a coming. Amen. I can't say it like E.V. Hill, but Sunday is a coming. <laughs> yeah. He would show them one more thing in the resurrection. But it says here, he was led like a lamb to the slaughter. For centuries, hundreds of thousands, probably millions of lambs had been slaughtered as a temporary covering for sin, as the Old Testament prescribed. But here, on the, at the very same time, Jesus, the Lamb of God, is being sacrificed. See, most people missed what all that sacrifice was all about. It was only temporary. It was a covering. It was pointing forward to the Lamb of God who doesn't cover. He takes away the sin of the world. And it says in verse 8, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was stricken. What does it mean to be cut off from the land of living? You're dead. It means he was put to death. Why? What does it say? For our transgression. Transgression, again, is just a fancy word for sin. It was for our transgression. In chapter 15 of Mark's gospel, it tells us that it was the ninth hour, three in the afternoon, when Jesus breathed his last. Now, the remarkable thing is that that is the exact time at which the Jews in the temple were sacrificing the lambs. 
And here the Lamb of God is being sacrificed once and for all for the sins of the world. And they didn't see it. They didn't recognize it. Verse 9 says, He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. Jesus was crucified between two thieves. He was the only righteous person to ever live, yet he was treated like a criminal, and he was sentenced to death, and he was executed by the unrighteous. Think about that. The author of life was put to death by us, by sinful mankind. It says he was assigned a grave with the rich in his death. We all four gospel accounts record how a rich man, Joseph of Arimathea, he went, to, he went and asked for the body of Jesus, and he took it, and he placed it in a, in a new tomb cut out of the stone, and he rolled a stone over it to seal it. He was buried in a rich man's place. And then the next verse, this one can really be kind of hard to get our minds around. It says in verse 10, Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. How could a loving God inflict such brutal suffering upon his own son? How could he crush him and cause him to suffer? The Lord did that. God the Father. I think maybe the best way to explain it is through a story. And maybe you've heard it. It's the story of John Griffith. He was in his early 20s, newly married, full of optimism. And along with his lovely wife, he'd been blessed with a beautiful baby boy. He was living the American dream. And then came the stock market crash in 1929. It devastated John's dreams. He packed up his few possessions and with his wife and his little son headed east in an old Ford Model A. They made their way to the edge of the mighty Mississippi River where he found a job tending one of the great bridges across the river. Day after day, John would sit in the control room and direct the enormous gears that would lift the immense bridge up and back down again across the river. It wasn't until 1937 that a new dream was born in John's heart. He began to catch a vision for a new life, a life in which Greg, his little son, would work shoulder to shoulder with him. It brought new hope and fresh purpose. Greg was now eight years old when the first day of his new life dawned. Excitedly, Greg and his father packed their life, their lunch, and headed off together toward the immense bridge. Greg looked on in wide-eyed amazement as his dad pressed down the huge lever that raised and lowered the vast bridge. As he watched, he thought, that, that father of mine, surely he is the greatest man alive. He is filled with wonder. He marveled that his dad could single-handedly control the movement of such an enormous structure. Now, before they knew it, noontime had arrived. John had just elevated the bridge and allowed some scheduled ships to pass through. And then taking his son by the hand, he headed off toward lunch. 
as they ate. John told his son stories about the marvelous destinations of the ships that glided beneath the bridge. Enveloped in a world of thought, he related story after his story, and his son was hanging on every word. Then suddenly, he and his son were startled back to reality by the shrieking whistle of a distant train. Looking at his watch in disbelief, John saw that it was already 107. Immediately, he remembered that the bridge was still raised and that the Memphis Express would be by in just minutes. In the calmest tone he could muster, he instructed his son Greg, stay put. Quickly, he leaped up to his feet, jumped onto the catwalk, and as the precious seconds flew by, he ran at full tilt to the steel ladder leading up to the control house. Once in, he searched the river to make sure that no ships were in sight. Then he looked beneath the bridge to make certain nothing was below. As his eyes moved downward, he saw something so horrifying that his heart froze in his chest. There below him in the massive gearbox was his beloved son. Apparently, Greg had tried to follow his dad, but had fallen off the catwalk. He was wedged between the teeth of two main cogs in the gearbox. Although he appeared to be conscious, John could see that his son's leg had already begun to bleed. Then an even more horrifying thought flashed through his mind. Lowering the bridge would mean crushing the apple of his eye. Panicked, his mind probed every direction, frantically searching for a solution. As each thought for rescuing his son appeared, he instantly realized the futility of every plan. There simply would not be enough time. His agonizing mind considered the 400 people that were moving inextricably closer and closer to the bridge. Soon the train would come roaring out of the trees with tremendous speed. But his son, his only son, his pride and his joy. He knew in a moment that there was only one thing he could do. And he knew he would have to do it. And so burying his face under his left arm, he plunged down the lever. The cries of his son were quickly drowned out by the relentless sound of the bridge as it slowly ground into position. With only seconds to spare, the Memphis Express, with its 400 passengers, roared out of the trees and across the mighty bridge. John Griffith, John Griffith lifted his tear-stained face and looked into the windows at a passing train. A businessman was reading the morning newspaper. A uniformed conductor was silently, was, was glancing nonchalantly as his at his large vest pocket watch. Ladies were already sipping their afternoon tea in the dining cars. A small boy, looking strangely like his own son, pushed a long thin spoon into a large dish of ice cream. Many of the passengers seemed to be engaged in their idle conversation or careless laughter. No one even looked his way. No one cast a glance at the giant gearbox that housed the mangled remains of his hopes and his dreams. In anguish, he pounded the glass in the control room. He cried out, what is the matter with you people? Don't you know? Don't you care? Don't you know I've sacrificed my son for you? What is wrong with you? No one answered. No one heard. No one even looked. Not one of them seemed to care. And then suddenly... 
as, as, as suddenly as it had happened, it was over. The train disappeared, moving rapidly across the bridge and out over the terrain. John Griffith crushed his son willingly. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And verse 10 in our text says, Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. You see a glimpse of hope there. Sunday's coming. Let's look finally at his resurrection, verses 11 and 12. It says, after the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong. Because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Amazing verse. Look at verse 11. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life. This is speaking of resurrection, rising to life again after death. Now imagine Isaiah penning this as he's inspired by the Spirit of God. And Isaiah knows that if one word of the prophet does not come true and he claims it's God's word, he's to be put to death. So Isaiah writing this, after the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life. This is crazy. This is talking about life rising up from death. How could it be? The Savior would be killed, cut off from life, placed in a grave, and yet he would see the light of life. Maybe you have a hard time believing that Jesus was raised from the dead. Maybe you never considered it. Maybe you think it's just a fable. Well, by those who have carefully considered it, it's been labeled the best attested fact of ancient history. Many, many skeptical scholars have gone about much work to disprove the resurrection, only to come face to face with all the evidence and end up embracing the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The evidence is simply overwhelming for anyone who chooses to take a look at it. Now, that evidence is not the focus of our study this morning, but if you'd like to learn more, you can go on our website and pull up last year's Easter message. It was called Proof, Proof, it's a tongue twister, <laughs> Proof, <laughs> Proof Positive. And it goes through the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Along with that, here's some other resources that I would recommend. The Case for Christ, Lee Strobel, is both a book and a movie. New Evidence that Demands a Verdict, Josh McDowell. I'm glad you asked. A really simple but helpful book. When Skeptics Asked by Norman Geisler, one of my favorite. Who Moved the Stone? is specifically focused on the, the fact that a resurrection. Uh, Who Moved the Stone by Frank Morrison. So, many, many skeptics who've looked into the evidence have, in fact, embraced the resurrection as 
undeniable fact. There's overwhelming evidence for those who are willing to check it out. So the resurrection proved that Jesus was the Son of God, and it proved that his sacrifice was sufficient for our salvation. Look at verse 11. It says, by his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many. Now, by his knowledge, maybe better wording would be by knowledge of him. By our knowledge of him, my righteous servant will justify many. Justify means to be declared righteous. It's a legal term. It depicts a, an accused person standing before the judge. And the judge says, you are justified. You are not guilty. You're free from any penalty. That's what justified means. There's only two ways to be justified or to be declared, to be declared righteous by God. One of them, perfectly obey the law of God. In other words, be sinless. If you just are sinless, if you never lie, steal, kill, murder, lust, any of that. If you're not selfish, self-centered, then you can be justified. God can say... He can declare you righteous. But none of us can do that. None of us can. Even if we didn't actively do that, we're born sinful because our parents were sinful. It was passed on to us. You don't have to teach a baby how to be selfish and how to hit and lie. It's natural sin within them when they're born. So none of us can go that route. Even if you go to church every Sunday, you pay your tithes and offerings. You give everything you have to the poor. God says, all of your righteous works are like filthy rags in comparison to his requirement of perfection. So scratch off option number one. Romans 3.20 says, no one will be justified by observing the law. That's because we all have sinned. Jesus was the only sinless one. And he did perfectly obey the law. And what did God do? Look back at verse 6. He placed on him the sin of us all. Why? So that there might be a second way for us to be justified. By exchanging our sin for his righteousness. Remember the verse I read earlier? 2 Corinthians 5.21 God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. We might be justified, declared righteous. God is willing to exchange your sin for his righteousness. That's got to be the best deal ever. What an exchange. That's how much he loves you. He says, you give me your sin. You can't fulfill that law. The whole law was there to demonstrate. You can't do this on your own. I'll do it for you. Now you give me your sin and I'll give you my righteousness. I'll declare you righteous. I will justify you. My righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. Justified. Here's a good way to think of this word to remember. Justified. Just as if I'd never sinned at all. God, when he looks at you, will see not your sin, but the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It'll be just as if I'd never sinned at all. 
I want to show you two more verses from the New Testament. These next two kind of tie it all together. And they're so amazing, I can't just read them to you. I need to show them to you. They come one after another, but they put the chapter break right in the middle. The first one, Romans 4.25. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. He was raised to life so that we might be declared righteous. Isn't that exactly what Isaiah 53 said 700 years before Jesus was born? And it was exactly what God would do. And then the very next verse. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This was the whole purpose for Jesus' resurrection. It was for our justification. For our justification. He was raised to life for our justification. Let me give you a simple visual because I'm a visual learner. Simple little graphic. On one side we have sinful mankind. And on the other side we have sinless Jesus Christ. And he takes our sin upon himself and gives us his righteousness in exchange. How's all this happen? By faith. It's by faith. It happens when we confess our sin and by faith we trust in what Jesus did on the cross. His death, his burial, his resurrection. The Bible says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You'll be justified. You'll be declared righteous, not because you are, but because Jesus is righteous. And he took your sin upon himself so that he might give you his righteousness. It's just mind-boggling to me to consider that the righteous one became sin so that the sinners might be declared righteous. What more could God possibly do to demonstrate his love for you and his love for me? And then finally, we come to verse 12. And and I'm calling it the reward of Jesus Christ. It says, therefore, I, God the Father, will give him, Jesus, a portion among the great. And he will divide the spoils with the strong. Because he poured out his life unto death. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Why did he do it? Why did he go to the cross? Hebrews 12.2 says, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross and its scorn and shame. What was the joy set before him? It was you. It was me. It was us being declared righteous so that we could be in a relationship with the holy God. That was the joy. He so loved The sinful world that he gave his one and only son. That you might be saved. That you might have a relationship with Jesus. Well, wrapping this up. Let me just return to the question I began with. What does the resurrection of Jesus have to do with me? 
What does the resurrection of Jesus have to do with me? Here it is. Just as surely as you live, you will also die, unless the Lord comes back first. And as just as surely as you will die, you will also be raised to life again. I'm sorry, John Yeast. <laughs> you are going to rise again. Every one of us will rise again. The resurrection of Jesus proves it. In fact, it guarantees it. The Bible says that when we are raised to life again, here's the, here's the catch. It's not all good news. It says that we're going to stand before God in judgment. Let me look at two more verses here. Acts 17, verse 31. It says, for he, God, has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men. How? By raising him from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus is the proof that God will judge all men. And Daniel 12, verses 2 and 3 say, Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, and others to shame and everlasting contempt. What makes the difference between the two? What makes the difference between heaven and hell? It's not your works, not my works. We're unrighteous, we're sinful. It's not our works, it's our relationship to Jesus Christ. Jesus said this, he said, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will say to them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Ouch. Away from me. Now when Jesus says, I never knew you, he's saying, you never asked me to be forgiven so that, I, that, so that you might come into my presence and have a relationship. So that you might learn from me. So that you could have fellowship with me. So that I might teach you what is truly right and wrong. So that I might protect you and bless you. You never came to me for that. We had no relationship. You went your own way. You went astray. I gave you my word. I gave you pastors and teachers. You even went to the gathering of my people and you heard of my salvation. But you wouldn't accept it. You didn't want to have a relationship with me. And so I'll ratify your decision. You'll spend an eternity apart from me in a place called hell where you will have to pay the penalty for your own sin yourself. And I will go on to be with those who long to be with me. They will spend an eternity with me in a place called heaven. That's what it means when Jesus says, away from me. I didn't know you. You had no interest in me then. Why do you want to spend eternity with me? I think it would be, it would be evil to force somebody who chose to separate themselves from God and all his goodness all their life. To force them to spend eternity in his presence. He said, I'm not going to do that. I'm not evil. I'm loving. I'm going to honor your choice. Away from me, you evildoers. I did not know you. Yet, to those who did know him, to those who did know him, he'll say, well done, good and faithful servant. Come and enter into your father's joy. See, here's the thing. Jesus did not come to condemn the world. He came to save the world. He says, I've come that they might have life and have it to the full. 
abundant life now in this world and eternal life to come. Jesus paid it all. His resurrection was so that you might be justified, declared righteous. Would God declare you righteous or do you still sit under the penalty of your own sin? Did you pray with me? Heavenly Father, this is an awesome day, God, because we see your power. We see what you have done. You told us you'd do it, and you did it exactly as you said, and it's undeniable. And I thank you that the Lord Jesus Christ is not dead but alive, and that he conquered sin and death, and he offers us forgiveness and eternal life as a free gift. That's something we could never earn on our own. Lord God, even today you call people to trust in you. You say today is the day of salvation. You say that if we confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord and we believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, then we will be saved. And so as we just continue as a church family to pray with our heads down and our eyes closed, I believe there's some here who are still under the penalty of sin. I believe they stand condemned before you, God. And if you're here and you've never received God's forgiveness and his gift of eternal life, is he stirring in your heart this morning? Is he revealing to you that he's real and he's alive? Is he asking you to place your faith in him? I can't convince you to do that, but God can by his spirit if God's stirring in your heart, don't deny him. If this is you, then right now, where you're sitting, while we're praying, I want you to do a simple thing. And I want you to raise your hand up and hold it up. And I will pray for you as we close. And by raising your hand, you are saying, God, I want to place my faith in you. Forgive me. Take my sin from me. Give me your righteousness. I want to... I want new life, God. I want to be justified. I want to be declared righteous. If that's you, raise up your hand. And I will pray for you. I see your hand in the back. I see your hand in the middle towards the front. You're saying, God, forgive me. Forgive me. Write my name in your book of life. Any others? And we'll pray together in a moment. And Christ will come into your life and forgive you. And you'll be declared righteous. And you'll receive his spirit as a guarantee of your inheritance in heaven. Anyone else? God says today is a day of salvation. Raise up your hand. Maybe some of you did this at some point in the past. And you've been living your life for yourself and not for him. Maybe you've gone your own way and you need to come back to following him. If that's you, then I want to also ask you to raise up your hand. And by doing so, you're saying, God, I've wandered. I've been living like I don't know you. And I want to come back to you. If that's you, raise up your hand. And we'll pray together. I see your hand. Praise God. Any others? Today is a day of salvation. If you're ready to place your faith in Jesus Christ this morning, if you're ready to get back on track, I want you to pray these words along with me. You can pray them in the privacy of your own heart, but tune us out and tune God in, in your heart, 
speak this to God. Lord, I know that I am a sinner. Forgive me for my sin. I believe that Jesus came to take my sin upon himself on the cross and offer me his righteousness. I believe that he died and that he rose again. And God, I turn from my sin and I turn to you. Fill me with your spirit. Give me new life and give me new purpose. Help me to live for you today and every day. In Jesus' name, amen. Praise the Lord.